What's up, everybody? I'm Billy Ryan, and you are listening to the No One Is Watching podcast, where we explore leadership, culture, and the impact they have on high-performing teams. We can all admire the championships that are won on the field and the big profits that show up on the balance sheet. But this show is dedicated to the premise that those battles are won long before they start. Through conversations with elite performers and leaders in the world of business, sports, and life in general, we'll learn valuable lessons on how you can optimize yourself and your organization. Today, we're joined by retired Navy Rear Admiral Marsha Marty Evans. Over her remarkably unique career, Marty not only was one of a handful of women to reach the rank of Rear Admiral, she was also the first woman to command a U.S. Naval Station and was the highest ranking woman in the Navy when she retired in 1998. After her retirement from the military, Marty's incredible run as a leader continued in the civilian world as she became the executive director of the Girl Scouts of America, then served as president and CEO of the American Red Cross, followed by a stint as the interim commissioner of the LPGA. Marty shares some incredible stories, which include her experiences leading in moments of intense crisis. She talks about the importance of mentorship and the unique challenges facing leaders, mentors in our country at large. Well, Marty, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm excited to, to chat today. Good to see you, Billy. So you have such a remarkable uh, story, a remarkable career. Uh, I was thinking about this and I'm like, I don't even really know where to start because there's so much uh, to dive into, but I'd, I'd love to really just sort of start at the, t- at the, at the top, so to speak, and, and tell me about sort of your uh, your younger years, maybe the the high school, college age. Um, I know you studied diplomacy and world affairs in in college, and then you went on and you got your your master's in law and diplomacy. So you clearly had big ambitions. Uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? I remember the first time somebody asked me that question. I was, I think, in elementary school, and I said I wanted to be an archaeologist. And frankly, I had no idea. I had read a book or something and picked that up. But I knew I wanted to be something, do something. And I was very fortunate in high school. Uh, I had wonderful teachers, teachers who took a really strong interest in not only teaching their specific subjects, but also uh, nurturing the, the goals and the dreams of young people. And in particular, a librarian. And uh, as a sophomore in high school, I volunteered and uh, sort of had a part-time job. And this wonderful librarian, Mrs. Rankin, uh, really took me under her wing. And, and she, she shared with me the idea that it, I could be anything or do anything I wanted to do. And then uh, in high school, in my senior year, my parents moved away. And that's always a trauma for a senior in high school to change schools. So they said, if I could find a teacher who would uh, take me in <laughs> as a boarder, I could stay in uh, my Southern California high school. And I was extremely fortunate. Mrs. Dower uh, was my senior English teacher. She taught honors English and uh, she invited me to live with her, with her family. And it was, uh, it was life-changing. She had dreams for me. And fortunately they coincided with mine. I knew I wanted (laughs) to go to college. (laughs) And my mother had, always said uh, from from day one, my earliest memories, get a college education and then you can do what you want. Uh, so and she hadn't. Uh, so I think that was a kind of lesson learned from her experience. So Mrs. Dower took me to Occidental College in Los Angeles uh, and introduced me to the admissions director And he had served a Peace Corps uh, term in Morocco. And I, as a child, a young child, had lived in Morocco for a couple of years. So uh, that was a fortuitous connection. Occidental had a very strong um, interdisciplinary uh, international relations program. So I could see myself there and um, was very fortunate to be accepted. And so the rest... Well, the rest really isn't history, but <laughs> I uh, I thought I was going to be a college professor and teach international relations. Uh, but about six weeks before graduation, I saw a picture of a woman naval officer in the newspaper, and I just had this fantasy. What would that be like to be in the Navy? And uh, I think 
you know, everybody knew, join the Navy, see the world. Uh, and it became my reality. I couldn't wow. get it out of my mind over the weekend. And I said, you know, I've either got to completely shut this idea down, or at least I've got to convince myself it was a bad idea. <laughs> so I met the Navy recruiter on Tuesday and completed the paperwork. And just after college graduation, uh, I went off to officer training. It was a two-year commitment, so it was not really significant in the overall scheme of things. And uh, so my first assignment was Washington, D.C., and my second assignment was Japan. And I stayed in the Navy beyond two years to have that opportunity. So that, that was how it all started. And I think the, the lesson is that uh, if you are fortunate enough to have adults who provide guidance and mentoring, then you have the possibilities. And uh, that's been, I think, a, a guidepost in my life is how to, how to pass it on and pass it forward. Uh, it makes it makes a ton of sense now, um, you know, sort of knowing where that story started for you and, um, you know, seeing what you've done to give back and to sort of pay it forward. And, and it's incredible how just one little, um, you know, fortuitous break and, and weird sort of unique circumstances where your parents were leaving and a teacher steps up in a library and makes an impact and, and you know, and here we are. So that's, that's amazing. Uh, and, and when you joined the Navy, that was sort of during the Vietnam era, right? So it was a very, uh, it was a, uh, I mean, different time is putting it mildly, but, um, you know, really just sort of an intense era, you know, in our, in our country's history for, for a whole bunch of reasons. So that had to be, um, you know, I guess just a wild ride from sort of day one, I would imagine. Well, the first thing I had to do to get to the recruiting station was cross a, a demonstration line. Uh, but I credit my college experience, um, certainly Occidental College in 1968 was just like virtually every other college in the country, and particularly liberal arts colleges. There was a very, very strong anti-war movement. Uh, but the, the benefit of that liberal education, I think, was, was the ability uh, to think through issues. And despite the fact that I accepted the the demonstrations, the anti-war attitudes, um, I was taught to think for myself. And I always felt as I took government courses, political science courses, history courses, that one of the strengths of the country was the fact that people would defend the country, the, the, uh, the whole notion of, of citizen soldier. Uh, and so I thought, you know, somebody should be stepping up and, you know, I could see myself doing that. And, um, and it took a long time. I mean, it took uh, years and years before uh, people at my college came back to me and said, you know, we were wrong in opposing what you did. So um, it was a little lonely at the beginning. And <laughs> I can say in my class of probably 375 people, I was the only one who volunteered to serve. Uh, the draft was still going on. So my classmates who went in the military did not volunteer. It was, uh, it was required of them. Yeah. I was going to ask about that because, um, obviously the, the draft, um, was their main source of, I don't want to call it recruitment, but, you know, sort of, um, acquiring and building that army and building that, that force. And, and we, we no longer live in that time, but I mean, you, you talk about sort of your, your friends and your college classmates sort of coming back to you after the fact, I mean, it sort of speaks for, I would say the country at large and kind of looking back on it now through, through different, through a different lens. But, you know, now obviously that you, you touched on the volunteer soldier, right. Defending your, your country. That's exclusively what we have now, you know? And so you were there as, you know, at, in, in a very tumultuous time as a woman, um, you know, coming from a liberal arts education, uh, and so there's a lot of things that you were kind of just like right into the, in the crosshairs for a variety of reasons. And now it's, it's an entirely new challenge, I would imagine, for the military to recruit and retain soldiers. And so I'm curious about your perspective on that, given, you know, what it was like when you entered and then obviously the long career you had and, and played a role in that, you know, once you, once you sort of ascended to those, those leadership roles. Well, I am four square behind the notion of volunteer service. Uh, 
in my early days, the first five, six years, I served with men who um, either had joined the Navy so they wouldn't be drafted by the Army uh, or, in fact, served alongside some Army soldiers who had been drafted. And uh, I can say unequivocally that there's nothing worse than having people forced into it with a threat of law, uh, forced into service. So I am uh, totally supportive of the all-volunteer force. And I can say in the, in the years after 1973 that I served, um, the wonderful men and women who volunteered and, and worked alongside me or worked in my commands um, or those I worked for uh, were, were just terrific people and were there in general for the right reason, service. Um, certainly they wanted to get ahead. They wanted careers. There, there was that um, pers- the personal goals that they achieved, but they were certainly in the service for the right reason. Today, we are in a total recruiting crisis and there are many reasons. I mean, they're, you know, just, <laughs> just like complex problems just simply don't have a single, a single right. reason, but right. Uh, we really do need to rethink how we uh, recruit and retain. And we need, underscore this, we need the support of the country to do it. Um, We've been at war for so many years. Uh, The country has seen uh, the effects of the war, the the men and women coming home with um, significant post-traumatic stress and and other uh, injuries. Um, And, Sadly, uh, fewer and fewer adult influencers uh, are recommending to young people in the recruitable age group uh, that they consider military service. Uh, The other issue is that um, COVID contributed to it, but it's not exclusively a product of COVID. Uh, The young men and women in the recruitable population, say from 17, 18 years old to 27, 28 years old are sadly by and large unqualified to serve. Uh, it's, uh, it's a whole range of issues from uh, medical conditions, obesity, uh, fitness, um, law enforcement records that are tragic. Uh, so those people who um, in past years would have um, been recruitable and, and would have sought out the opportunities in the military um, are turned away because they just don't meet the standards. And I, I think we have to somehow reconcile that. And the answer is not lowering the standards. Uh, we need men and women who um, can, who are or can become fit. Uh, we need them who are high school diploma graduates, proving that they can sit in the seat and get that diploma and be prepared for high-tech, advanced training, um, leadership roles. Uh, so we've, we've got to, as a, as a country, we've got to take a close look at this and, and fix the problem. And we need to fix it right away because the uh, time is of the essence. Yeah, it's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. I, I definitely had thought about it from a pure recruitment standpoint where the, the cell is a little harder these days just because of sort of the societal and cultural changes. Um, it's, you have to meet people where they are and that, that sense of sort of duty and service and sacrifice is not what it was at one point. Um, so that's a huge hurdle in and of itself, but I hadn't thought about it from the other standpoint where there's just a lack of, you know, the pool of qualified candidates has shrunk so much for all the reasons you touched on and I'm sure others. And, um, yeah, that's, that's scary. That's scary to think about. And, um, you know, it's, um, I, I have some good friends who, who have served in a variety of forces and, and, um, it just, I'm in awe of them. And, and, and I think that, um, and, and you certainly fall into that category as well because of the sacrifice that that entails. And, um, I think if you're not just predisposed and wired that way, you know, to serve the greater good. And I do, I do think personally that people want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And I just think that that is sort of hardwired into our DNA. Uh, I just think we need to make serving and, and sort of in, in the military, a, a more viable option for them, because I do think people are seeking that. And rather than doing it in a social media chat room or, um, you know, in a gang or on a sports team or whatever, you know, you know, certainly a more productive uh, arena to pursue would be the military. So that's, that's an interesting uh, predicament, I guess we're in from that perspective. 
You know, Billy, there's another aspect of it too, uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, recruiters are not being allowed to come on high school campuses, or if they are allowed, it's once a year or something like that. So uh, one of the challenges is that young people don't know about the opportunities. Now, when did that uh, they start? They don't know that they can serve for um, four years, uh, get excellent technical uh, training, technical education. They can get the GI Bill college benefits. So when they leave the military, they not only, in many cases, get some college credits for what they've studied in the military, but they also have access to um, very pretty generous um, uh, dollars to support their educational goals. So um, the young people are operating uh, often in a vacuum. They, they just don't know because they haven't had access to reliable information about the opportunities and the benefits of serving in the military. That's, I didn't even realize that, to be honest with you. It's obviously a, a, an intentional uh, move. I don't know by whom or, or uh, why. I mean, it's sort of like an anti-military sentiment, presumably to promote sort of higher education right out of, right out of, uh, of high school, I would imagine. Um, and, and I, I thought a lot about it. My, both my parents were school teachers uh, and you know, I went to a liberal arts college as well. And so that was um, always a big part of my life, but uh, it, it's, it's different now. It's, mm -hmm. there are options that are out there now. Uh, a lot of it because of technology, I think COVID shifted that for a lot of people made them reevaluate what an edge, you know, sort of the definition of, of an education or higher education or however you want to qualify that. And, it's been interesting to kind of watch it. And I'm curious to see how the next few years play out because that to me feels like uh, if you can sideline all of some of the other issues you talked about that came from COVID as they affect the military, but it seems like an, an opportunity for the military to provide an alternative path that people may be more open-minded to now than, you know, for like when I was growing up, it was college or bust, right? And that was it. Yeah. And, there, you know, from my perspective, I just, I didn't, to your point about high school kids, didn't really, I mean, yeah, I could have joined the military. I knew that was an option, but that was sort of it. I didn't really know what else was out there. And I think people are more open-minded to what else may be out there. So who knows, maybe that is an opportunity that, that can be seized and uh, some doors can be open for people that might be very well suited for that, for that life. You know, two other points. One is that uh, the um, economy plays heavily in this. So, you know, when, when uh, it's a, a burgeoning economy, and, and at least when hiring was a lot of hiring going on, uh, the military obviously has to compete for, for the talent. The other thing that uh, I think people don't talk about, but you know, a young person who joins the military out of high school serves three, four years, whatever the commitment is, and there are different commitments depending on the circumstances. Uh, when they finish at 21, 22, they're different people. They have much clearer ideas of the direction they want their lives to take. Uh, they are um, often just more highly motivated, particularly if they go into an academic setting. They, they have goals, they're more concrete, um, and they tend to stick with it. And I, I spent a couple of years as the chief recruiter for the Navy. This is back in, in the 90s. And I used to talk to the most successful recruiters and they would tell me that the best recruiting time was at uh, winter break, at uh, holiday break, December, January timeframe, because the number of young people will have been, uh, would have been to college. Uh, they get there and they're not sure why they're there. They don't know what they really want to study. They haven't figured it out. And they find the opportunities in the military at that time excellent. So that just reinforces in my mind that um, spending a couple of years uh, doing something and then reevaluating your goals is, is not a bad thing. And that actually happened to me. Uh, I mentioned I wanted to be a college professor, uh, but after I was in the Navy for a couple of years, had been stationed in Japan, had the experience there of uh, living in Tokyo, uh, coming back to Washington for an assignment, working at the White House. Um, I really didn't want to be a college professor anymore. I wanted to be with college professors and, and gain knowledge. I certainly wanted to go to graduate school and the Navy sent me to graduate school. Um, but my uh, my life course had, had changed. The, 
the onward path was a little bit different after I had spent a couple of years out in the, in the workforce. Yeah, I know we joked um, in, a, in a conversation, uh, a prior conversation about sort of the, the top gun bump you saw as the head of recruitment for the Navy and sort of the, <laughs> the, uh, the misinformed impression that a lot of people were joining the Air Force and they didn't realize or thought they <laughs> wanted to join the Air Force and realized that, that was uh, that was the Navy. So maybe 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 Maverick will give us another bump. Who knows? Um, I think you know. it has. Good. <laughs> At Great. least for uh, carrier based uh, pilots. OK. Pilots. <laughs> OK. Awesome. So, so you, you obviously served, um, in a number of, um, crises. I mean, from, uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about your transition out of the military before we do that. You know, you were the, um, I believe you were the Navy, were the on-scene commander in San Francisco for the earthquake in 89. I was right. To, after, after it happened, the world series was going on. Yeah, uh, my boss, that. the Admiral was at the at the game and couldn't get back. So I was, I was wow. in charge. And and was that your first real exposure to that, a crisis of that scale and, and being in a leadership position? Uh, sure. I mean, I had been a commanding officer, so uh, I had, uh, you know, a unit and was accountable and so on, but uh, for external factors, if you will, being right. forced on, yeah, that, uh, 10, I think it was uh, 4.19 sometime that afternoon when the earth moved. And when the earth moved, I happened to be at our headquarters building on Treasure Island in San Francisco, a man-made island. And if you know anything about earthquakes, <laughs> you do not want to be on a man-made yeah. island when yeah. you have a, a major, a major earthquake. It was mm -hmm. uh, terrifying. I bet. I bet. Um so you, you go through, uh, you know, in a pretty illustrious military career, and then you transition out of that. Um, and then was it the Girl Scouts next? Was mm -hmm. that the next opportunity? Yes, so you were, um, that's interesting to me because, you know, obviously there are parallels with the, uh, the leadership and the mentorship of, of young people in particular. Um, and obviously as a, as a woman in the military and that experience, I'm sure was, uh, an incredible asset for the organization and the girls and, um, even going back to the crisis theme, you know, you were there, you know, not in, on the front lines, but you, during nine 11, you were overseeing the Girl Scouts of America, right? Which you don't necessarily, is that right? That's exactly right. Okay. Yes. I was, uh, I was there and I was actually in our Washington office. The Girl Scouts have a Washington office that's about a block and a half from the white house. So uh, when the crisis happened, I mean, when the attacks happened, you know, we didn't know, and we were just part of the general public. We didn't know, uh, you know, if they were going to attack the White House and um, when that plane flew into the Pentagon. So it was, it was scary close. And uh, my office in New York City at the headquarters happened to look on the World Trade Center. So... Um, we, we were connected with it <laughs> in a way that was pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. I'm sure you, uh, just defaulted back and put your military hat on pretty quickly, at least in your own, in your own head. And then, you know, sort of the, the, the aftermath of that, you know, we hear you, you, the, the immediate sort of thought goes to the crisis, the first responders and everybody that's involved in it, rightly mm -hmm. so. But the aftermath of that as, as someone who's leading an organization of young people, uh, and and their world has forever been changed and dealing with that trauma and what it all means. I mean, that had to be a huge burden uh, and, and a really unique challenge for you where it's probably le it's probably a little bit more, um, you know, sort of therapist and, and, and EQ oriented than just sort of, you know, rallying the troops and leading them in a, in a, in a military crisis. That, can you tell me a little bit about that experience? Well, the first thought, on my mind was uh, the Girl Scout family. So uh, being in New York, we had, um, fam you know, the potential of family members uh, who were impacted by, by the attacks and Washington, D.C. as well. So uh, that was the first, um, the first issue was just making sure that any of the extended family of the staff uh, and the volunteers that, you know, we, we knew and, and could offer whatever support. And, um, and it was, you know, it was one of those things that, that all of a sudden 
no matter where you were in Washington, New York, you were concerned about uh, evacuating buildings. So we, you know, we kind of, the, the, the crisis just was all encompassing. But then, um, you know, as we reflected on the Girl Scout program, uh, we were very concerned about what support we could provide. And we knew that Girl Scout uh, troops, even more important than before, that girls have a have a healthy way to connect with other people, caring adults, and um, and continue on and uh, and get through this because it obviously was such a trauma for the entire country. Yeah, I imagine. I, I actually thought about this, um, not directly related to to the Girl Scouts. I was a I was a, I guess I was a Cub Scout. I never made it to Boy Scout, but I was little little. I would do the the, the Cub Scout thing and. Um, I thought about this yesterday with the, the tragedy in, in Nashville with the school shooting and uh, my wife and I were talking just how, you know, just how frequent these things are uh, seemingly now. And mm -hmm. it's, and it's tragic. And it's obviously a very, to your point earlier, a very complicated issue. Um, but it, it gets back to an earlier point I made about people wanting to be a part of something and have that support and not everybody gets that at home. Um, and you know, the Girl Scouts are an incredible example of an organization that can provide that and right. and be that support structure for, for some people who may desperately need it. And I just um, get off my soapbox, but it's, um, you know, the world needs a little bit more of that type of organization, whether it's the Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts or anything um, in the same genre of just having sort of a positive place, you know, the YMCA, right? A positive place for young people to sort of be. And I mean, you you springboarded from some positive influences early in your life that weren't in your family. And so, um, you know, it's just, it, it stuck with me. And, and as we're sitting here talking about the Girl Scouts, it seems like a, an excellent example of that type of environment for, for young people. Well, it is. And, and one of the things we tried very hard was to figure out uh, who wasn't in Girl Scouts yet. Uh, and so we looked at zip codes and participation and, and availability of Girl Scout troops and not surprising, uh, the extreme rural areas, as well as the deep inner city areas, those both had, um, percent less, uh, per hundred girls, for example, participation. So what could we do to, uh, to change that? And, um, certainly with, you know, tele- uh, capability now that that opens opportunities for girls to connect. Um, but uh, one of the programs I was proudest of was Girl Scouting Beyond Bars. And that was a program uh, that we established working with women's prisons, because certainly a girl whose mother or grandmother is in a prison is not, <laughs> is not available to support um, a, a Girl Scout troop or her volunteer, right. be a volunteer with Girl Scouts. So we actually took um, took Girl Scouts to the prisons and the mothers and the grandmothers that were incarcerated became the Girl Scout leaders. And it was wow. in a number of prisons around the country. And we partnered with some other service organizations like Rotary to get the girls there. And typically uh, twice a month, uh, the girls would come and they would do activities, just a typical Girl Scout troop meeting uh, with their moms and and or grandmothers, whoever was was the person in prison, and it it had um, I mean it was it was a miracle really. The um, uh, participation by the inmates was totally based on uh, their behavior records. So we not only had girls that were excited to see and be with their moms, but we also had mothers who were model prisoners. And for me, one of the highlights of my time at Girl Scouts was meeting a woman who had been incarcerated, finished her uh, term, and then became a Girl Scout volunteer out in her community. So somebody's got to make that movie. That's incredible. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's not only the girls who benefit, but yeah. in many cases, it's the adult volunteers and um so, you know, we, we just need more programs to figure out how to reach girls in their settings and then um, how, to, how to help them. Another program that we had was through um, the good offices of some women senators, Barbara Mikulski, Kay Bailey Hutchison at the time, 
and it was an appropriation, and, and Senator Bond from Missouri was key here. It was an appropriation uh, that was under the juvenile justice line in the budget, uh, because we know that uh, when young people are in positive activities, their need for juvenile justice goes down. So it was a, a delinquency prevention opportunity. And it funded more Girl Scout staff members who could go into the inner cities, recruit not only the girls for Girl Scout troops, but recruit the moms and the grandmothers and train them to be Girl Scout leaders. And then over time, hand off the, the whole program to the, uh, to the women, to the adult volunteers. Um, and that was a, is a very successful program. Just you needed some catalyst to get the program started. And, um, you know, as, as many things, it took, it took some more money to do it, but it was money in the federal budget that was extremely well spent. That's, that's incredible. And, and there are, you know, whatever the issue is these days, we touched on it a little bit earlier, just the, the inclination to sort of plant your flag on one side of the argument and dig in your heels. And mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a, a, a bit of an epidemic right now. And, and the leadership right. that you demonstrated and being able not just to sort of lead it, but to actually execute something that is, is sort of sitting in between two populations in need and helping both of them and sort of solving two problems at once. I mean, we just need, we just need way more of that where it's, it's problem solving and it's, it's, it's meeting folks where they are. It's easy to say, Hey, these, these women are incarcerated, forget them, you know, like they, they deserve it. And, you know, yeah, I feel bad for these little girls, but you know, it's somebody else's problem. And, and to be able to kind of make that connection that that's actually an opportunity, um, you know, certainly for like the mother or grandmother daughter relationship, but also, I mean, the success story of the woman who got out and, you know, made that a big part of her life moving forward. It's amazing. And, and I just think that we should, yeah. I wish we could see more of that sort of like the creative problem solving instead of like, you know, the zero sum uh, approach of debate or argument that we seem to be seeing today. Mm-hmm. Right. So you, I'm curious about um, the transition from the military to the Girl Scouts. Uh, we talked a little bit about sort of the area you came up in professionally. How, how cognizant, you know, you, you had, some achievements, uh, independent of era or gender, but, uh, you know, how cognizant were you of, of your, your profile as a woman, as you continued to sort of, um, you know, ascend into these significant leadership roles in the military in particular, and kind of what that meant, was that something you were conscious of, or was it something that you kind of looked back on and say that was, you know, is it a hindsight thing or was it a real time sort of awareness? <laughs> Well, it was being in the moment to some extent. Um, you know, I, I was very fortunate in the military. I came in when the draft was going on, and then the draft ended five years after I joined. And all of a sudden, uh, when the draft ended, the top planners in the Pentagon said, oh, my gosh, how are we going to get enough people in the military? Well, at that point, uh, prior to 73, qualified women were being turned away because of the assignment restrictions. And so they said, well, we can't bring a lot of women in because in the Navy, they can't go to sea duty. And so, um, so many qualified women over the years were turned away. Well, that changed. And in 73, the uh, boundaries were slowly taken, taken off. And the percent of women was gradually uh, was, was uh, rose from 2% when I joined and it, it uh, started climbing. So now all of a sudden the military planners had to figure out where to assign us. And uh, so I started in 73, I started uh, getting assignments where women hadn't served before. And there was always, you know, a little bit of uh, talk about it, you know, sometimes publicity either intended or not intended. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, first woman to do this and that. So, uh, quite honestly, um, I, as, as I went through these assignments, um, it, was, it was a little scary in some cases because you want to do well and you, know, you feel like people are watching you, but you do it once or twice and, and you survive and you say, well, okay, I'll, I'll take on another one of these assignments they've, they've asked me or ordered me to and um, and you realize that it just kind of goes with the territory and you're a little bit less 
aware, I, I guess you might say. So I think all of those years of um, having those opportunities, growing in those assignments, really prepared me, <coughs> pardon me, in many ways for uh, the higher level assignments, uh, not only at, as an admiral in the Navy, but then um, in Girl Scouts at the Red Cross and, and on. So uh, so I'm really grateful for that opportunity. And I had, I had wonderful advice from a senior woman uh, ahead of me in the Navy. And when I asked her, I said, well, how do you, how do you do these things that no woman has ever done before? And you may or may not have all of the qualifications that, uh, some HR person thinks you need. And she said, press on regardless. And I, that was the best advice. You know, you, you just press on and you find that, uh, there are all kinds of people in your team who can help you get the job done, who want to get the job done. They understand how important accomplishing the mission is and, uh, and you do it. So I, um, you know, I was aware of it. Uh, and frankly, occasionally it was helpful. It was helpful to, when you needed access to media, for example, it was helpful to, um, to be able to, um, offer uh, the TV station or the radio uh, show the opportunity to talk with a woman in the Navy. Right. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it resonates with me because, you know, my, my career was in sports and, and I don't, I don't like drawing the parallels between military and sports because I think it's a little trite, yeah. but um, there are, there are a lot of them. And um, just this notion that, we can sit here and sort of do the paralysis by analysis thing and, and have the imposter syndrome and doubt ourselves and all this other stuff. And I mean, I'm, I'm even going through it with my, with one of my kids right now where there's doubt creeps in. I can't do this. I can't do that. I just go do it. Just go try, you know? And like, there, I just feel like we're capable of so much more. Um, and, and the military sort of forces you to do that, right? Because you're going to get, you have an order and you got to go do it. And then you're like, well, I didn't think I could do that, but I just did. And sports are similar where you face with something that you're like, this is, I don't, I don't think I can win this, or I don't know if I can do that. And the next thing you know, you're on the other side of it. And so I don't think there's any replacement for that from like a professional or personal development standpoint of the actual doing of the task, right. And the checking that box. Um, so it's interesting to hear you um, from that perspective, doing it. Cause who knows, you may have not, if you weren't forced into some of those roles or, or assignments, who knows what would have happened. Um, so it's a little bit of trial by fire. Well, at one point, I finally realized that it's not only, you know, you're not only the one who needs to succeed. It's the people who assigned you to that job. It's That's the person you're working for. They want you to succeed, too. So That's truly, you're not out there on the on the limb. You know, you, you have a full team supporting you to get the job done. That's a great point. That's a great point. So you shifted out of the, the Girl Scouts and, and took on the role of CEO at the Red Cross. Um, another obviously high profile, impactful role as far as uh, giving back and, and having meaningful impact uh, you know, to the, the world at large, really. Mm -hmm. And then you were CEO during Critique Katrina. Is that correct? I was, yes. Yeah, you, you have been through some some ordeals. Uh, so that had to be, how long were you on the job when that happened? Uh, well, that was 2005. So I, I joined the Red Cross in the summer of 2002. Uh, 2003 was in the overall scheme of things, looking back, uh, a pretty mild year. And then 2004 was one of the historic years of the Red Cross from the viewpoint of, of disasters, the number of people impacted, the scale and scope of disasters. And, you know, we realized in hindsight, it was just a warm up for the horrific year of 2005. Yeah. That, um, I suppose your military background trained you well for responding to those sorts of things, but just the size and scope and um, you know, sort of the, the collaboration that you needed, I'm sure to pull all those efforts together. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and Katrina in particular, obviously got a lot of attention, um, you know, for, for obvious reasons. And then a lot of criticisms in the world that we live in, everybody's going to sort of armchair quarterback who did what and why. And, um, you know, again, it's, there's the element of just doing and executing and, um, you know, you're never going to be perfect with that sort of thing, but 
um, just starting to do something to help a whole bunch of people. Um, that had to be difficult uh, to, um, even with your background and experiences, to hear criticisms like that, not to you necessarily directly, but to the Red Cross or to the government or what have you, um, you know, when you're trying to obviously help as many people as you can. Uh, you're exactly right. I mean, it was extremely painful, but, you know, you press on regardless. Um, you know, one of the, I think one of the issues is you you try to learn from previous experience. So we had the, the hurricanes in 2004, and we did a lot of work, uh, tabletop exercises, trying to figure out, because we we thought we had the big ones those years. Um, and I think it's safe to say, it's accurate to say that one of the crises of 2005 and the Katrina year was our failure of imagination. Uh, when something is 10 times worse in however measures, whatever measures you have, it, you know, you, you can maybe plan for two or three times worse, but 10 times worse, you, it's, that's a tougher one. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that, uh, you know, not only Ray Cross, but also all of the agencies that supposed to come, that are supposed to come together to respond, whether it's the National Guard, FEMA, every state, every local agency that's in uh, disaster response. Uh, I think I think it's um, it's accurate to say that all of the agencies across the board. Uh, while they may have tried to imagine the worst ever, uh, we just fell short. It, it was it was beyond um, anybody's uh, expectation, anticipation. Uh, but the good news is, out of Katrina and, and that year, uh, disaster response agencies at whatever level are all much better than they ever were before. So I think we we took lessons learned and, and that's what you have to do. You can't change the past in some case, in most cases, every case, uh, but you sure can prepare better for the future. And, you know, I live in uh, Florida in, in an area that's been impacted by hurricanes and, and it's really different today. The, the way that public agencies partnerships with private support agencies it's really different today in a, in a good way. doesn't change the fact that the disasters happen, but the uh, response is, um, is, is better. Yeah. It's a really good point because in the military, you can, you can probably strategize for worst case scenarios because you have recon on what the enemy may have and, and what, what the practical, you know, scenarios may be. So you kind of know worst case scenario. Uh, you know, you can't predict that with mother nature. And so any scenario, okay, is it, is it two X? Is it three X? Is it five, like 10 X of anything that you've never experienced? I don't, what, whatever arena you're in, whatever role you're in, that's awfully hard to prepare for. Um, and so, yeah, I can't imagine you just got to figure it out to your point, like press on regardless, and then um, take away those lessons and make those improvements. And, you know, certainly we've seen the improvements that have have you know outlasted post Katrina and kind of the, mm -hmm. the changes that made people we, we learned our lessons right and so right. it's all you can do I suppose mm -hmm. so true. you go from all of these high uh, very public crises driven roles and again I come from the sports world so everybody's like man the, the commissioner of of a sports league that's got to be a big job that's got to be that had to be like a a walk in the park for you. You come in, uh, interim commissioner of the LPGA. You know, I'm, 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 I make light of it, but I mean, given, given what you dealt with in your career, um, again, the perilous between military and sport, notwithstanding, like it had to be a had to be a different set of challenges for you, which I'm sure you embraced. <laughs> you know, uh, it was a different set of challenges, and it came after I had quote unquote retired from full time work. So I was, you know, asked to take on this role. And one of the things when I was in Girl Scouts that I uh, supported strongly was getting more girls involved in sports. And out of that effort came a partnership with the LPGA. And I had not been a golfer, so uh, I, uh, I didn't really appreciate. I, I knew that, you know, women uh, golfers, women athletes um, had spectacular qualifications and 
characteristics that I thought were important for, for girls to be exposed to and, you know, have the opportunity to emulate. And um, I, started, I started going to golf tournaments. Uh, my husband and I just found that that was great fun to go on the weekend to the professional tournaments and then was asked to be on an advisory board because I was kind of the ultimate fan and that <laughs> led to uh, being on the on the board of the LPGA and then um, asked to um, uh, take over that role on an interim basis. I can say unequivocally, it was the most fun job. I mean, going <laughs> to a golf course for work. Uh, and, I, you know, I've talked to golf pros and, you know, the serious business of, of golf, but it is really fun. Yeah. And um, for a, my capstone work, you know, a, a work job. It was it was a great one, but I will tell you, it was it was an extraordinary experience to be with these young women who are putting their heart and soul and effort into um, having success on the tour was was thrilling to me. I, I just marveled at uh, at what they were doing and and how hard they worked and and their their discipline. Uh, the reflection of the core values of golf, character, integrity, perseverance, um, respect for others, all of those things I just saw on a daily basis. And that was really, really fun. And I'll tell you, at the end of my time, which was uh, about seven months, um, I was uh, given golf lessons. (laughs) (laughs) If you want a wonderful pursuit in retirement, um, I highly recommend uh, golf. It's, it's a great sport. I love to watch it, but even more so, I love to be out on the course. Uh, it seems like a nice parting gift after you run the league <laughs> yeah. for a while. But it's interesting, uh, at least from the outside looking in, it seems uh, golf in particular being an individual sport uh, and just the way it's structured different from uh, what I'm more familiar with, with leagues and teams and organizations. These These folks are, these women are, are one person entities, right? They are their own sort of organization. And so what was that dynamic for you? Like, was that, did that stand out to you coming from a very sort of team driven environments in the past? Uh, well, yes and no. I, I, certainly the, the individuality, if you will, of it. And, and that, you know, for me as a, as a wannabe uh, golfer, uh, understanding the the body mind connection and how important not only the, the skills the motor skills but also the mental toughness and and attitude um, that was it was so insightful to um, talk to the young women about how they uh, managed to pull it all together and you know do well on the tour um, but but it's also a team effort. I mean, to have a successful ladies professional golf association is a full team effort, and uh, the staff was was first rate. I mean, the, many of uh, or a number of the um, staff members were themselves professional golfers, and then they moved over to the the management side of it, uh, and some others were not. Um, but it's uh, it's full team. I mean, everything from the business, the pure business side of it, the financial side to the media side, uh, the legal issues involved, um, especially in you know this era, uh, it's it's a full team. And then the the players themselves are supported by teams, and there's great camaraderie. I mean, they're competitors, but there's great camaraderie among uh, the women on the tour, supporting each other. Um, and what I especially loved were, um, these are young women, some of them having children, the children coming with them as they played, um, you know, that was so much fun. It was, it was a family effort in some cases, uh, parents came out. So it was just thrilling to be part of that. That's great. Yeah. I, I, I just recently watched the, um, the Netflix, uh, series on the PGA tour. And, um, you know, I thought it did a good job of sort of doing exactly that humanizing and personalizing, uh, the stories and seeing a little bit of behind, behind the scenes stuff. So that was, mm-hmm. that was cool. Uh, we've talked about, you know, your, your vantage point now on military and, and, um, sort of the recruitment efforts and, and the challenges that lie ahead. You've talked about the Girl Scouts, you've talked about the Red Cross. I mean, where, uh, you know, if you could, given the diversity of sort of your experience, if, if you could see one thing or sort of one, give one piece of advice to, to, you know, either young people themselves or those who are 
you know, in a, in a position to be impactful to develop future leaders, what, what would that be? You know, you know, press on regardless, of course, is, is one of the hallmark uh, pieces of advice I give. But um, what I take away from my uh, work today with young people, I just was with a seventh grader who's in first T and talking with her about her goals. She actually wants to be a Navy pilot. So I was pretty excited. Awesome. Um, and talking with, with young women, particularly through the first T, what impresses me is they they have the potential. It's there. Uh, they they have character. They understand the importance of things like integrity. Uh, they understand the importance of having goals, of working hard. Uh, and I I think we just have to support young people uh, and help them through the little hiccups, the little rough spots but help them keep their eye on the prize. And, and, you know, maybe it's not a discrete goal, uh, like I want to go to the Naval Academy and become a Navy pilot. Um, but it's, I want to have my life have meaning. I want to be able to give back and support those positive goals that young people have. It's so important for, for our society, but I would also say that it's one of the richest experiences in my life. Uh, working with young people as a mentor. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, that's saying something given the, the, the things that you've done over your career. So, uh, Mari, this has been a ton of fun. I really appreciate your time. Um, it's been a lot of fun catching up and um, just thanks for joining. Well, Billy, I've enjoyed it, but someday I want to turn the tables and ask you those same questions. <laughs> anytime, anytime. Happy okay. to. Thanks, Mari. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the No One Is Watching podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe to be notified of future episodes. If you'd like to support the show, please take a second, leave a rating and review, or share it with your friends. If you're interested in similar content, you can check out my website at nooneiswatching.com, where you can subscribe to the newsletter, read my blog, or follow me on your social media platform of choice. Look, your time is valuable, so thank you for lending me some of it. We'll see you next time.